Hello, and welcome back to the Book on Fire. This episode is the continuation of our discussion of Chapter 4 of Caliban and the Witch on the Great Witch Hunt. We recorded this conversation all in one go, and we've just split it up over a couple of different episodes. So I'm just going to put you right back to the conversation where we left off, finishing up talking about the witch hunt in Europe. Okay, here you go. So as we've been talking about the entire community of peasants or proletariats were affected by the witch hunts, but it's pretty important that we emphasize the disproportionate effect that this campaign of terror had on women compared to other people. Most accounts of the gender disparity in the witch hunts put the number at about 80% women as victims of the executions. Right. So we want to talk for a while now about why that would be, why women were targeted more than men. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, what was the point of that ca- of that selection process or the campaign being so misogynist in its action? And one part I want to talk about is that there was a sort of an underpinning philosophically about the gender relations and just about the differences between the genders that going into this period um, coming from a few different angles. So we already had the Garden of Eden story blaming Eve and therefore all the descendants of Eve as being responsible for sin. That story became more and more misogynist over time. And a few other people really added to some of this at the time. Um, the authors of the Malleus Maleficarum, right. they, when they were describing who was a witch and the activity of the devil who really had not blossomed into full personality much until this point in history. The devil had The devil yeah. hadn't. The devil was known, according to them, as much preferring the company of women, um, being drawn <laughs> to women, yeah. and primarily working through women. And that had to do with the fact that women were seen, at least according to the authors of The Hammer of the Witches, as being uh, lusty, insatiable creatures of desire who were primarily here to tempt men and also just like a very like susceptible to the machinations of the devil. Yeah. So basically, we, I'm saying we as in women, uh, <laughs> were seen as this devil's gateway. Right. In the philosophy of the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's even a, a short section in the chapter where Federici um, extrapolates from what you're talking about to the emerging impression of nature in general. You know, how like wild nature and the wilderness would be associated also with the devil. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where the devil lives, like, out beyond oh, right. the cultivated field in the deep forest where the animals are, you know? And so there's this idea that women, by their nature, are closer to wild nature mm-hmm. than they are to civilization. Right. And that all of that untamed stuff is the land of the devil. Right. Like, basically. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, we could talk about that for a long time. Yeah. Um, maybe that's going to be, we're considering maybe doing a wrap up at the end that has more of this specific information in it. But for now, we need to definitely like keep on with the 
women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> women as targets. Yeah, yeah, right. But that's all really fascinating how the devil appeared and rose in prominence in people's minds right at this point and why. Yeah, and how the devil became, we're talking about what we're not going to talk about, but how <laughs> the devil became, how the devil became like kind of consolidated in one figure. Right. At this time period too, you know, there's a lot of, um, what's it called? Like devil, not demonology, uh, or devilology. <laughs> there's a word for that. Uh, that could be a whole other podcast, not just podcast episode, but a whole other podcast. Uh, probably is that would, would be really interesting and informative. But Hedericia talks about here about how, like in the Middle Ages, there were lots of devils, you know, and you could potentially like maybe even command them to do stuff. And there were spells for this. And this is what a lot of the grimoires are about. But then at this period, there emerged kind of a single demonic adversary antithesis of God that was the devil <laughs> instead of, you know, someone who you could like call on and make do stuff. It was somebody who would call on you, especially if you were a woman who would appear to you and seduce you into this pact. <laughs> yeah. Into a contractual relationship where they have power over you. Yeah. 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 Super interesting. And a sexual relationship often. Yes. Yeah. I mean, right. why not? Yeah, that's what that's what a lot of them were thinking, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, in addition to that underpinning, mm-hmm. our way of thinking about women as different and weak, weaker in some ways and more susceptible to the newly consolidated devil, uh, there were also ideas coming from the Protestant Reformation, um, where once there was more emphasis on individual relation with God and individual relationship with sin, um, Martin Luther and some of the other primary Protestant thinkers identified women as just generally morally weaker mm-hmm. and sort of mentally weak as well and more prone to just kind of giving in to seduction and temptation easier because we're just weaker. Right. Right. So those were definitely two of the ideas, the lusty, bestial nature of women as seen by some of the misogynist demonologists and also the idea of women as just morally corrupt or corruptible. Yeah. And on top of all of that, Federici has her own functional analyses that address the question of why women in particular were the targets of the witch hunt and by functional, I mean, she often takes the perspective of looking back now in hindsight, what can we say was the function mm. of the witch hunts? Like, what did it accomplish for the emerging order, for the ruling classes? What is the work that we could theorize that the witch hunt was doing, you know? And she has a lot of contributions to a theory of the function of the witch hunts, and we're about to talk about that. But she also mentions that there have been theories that have come before hers. And one of them is the famous theory advanced by the anthropologist Margaret Murray in the early 20th century. She wrote a book in 1921 called The Witch Cult in Western Europe, in which she proposed a well-known theory that what was being persecuted as witchcraft in this time period was the remnants of a matrifocal pagan religion that was still being practiced, you know, continually from pagan times underground 
as a underground force within the Christian world and that the authorities were rooting it out mm-hmm. at this time period. You know, so Margaret Murray has this idea that the yeah, that the witches were were basically old school pagans who were refusing to get on board with the Christian paradigm. Um, right. And so, therefore, needed to be eliminated or reformed. And Margaret Murray's thesis was really attractive to a lot of uh, the founders and the early practitioners of Wicca mm-hmm. and a lot of the the interest in neo-paganism that started up in the 20th century. And the Murray thesis has been debunked pretty thoroughly. Yeah, and it's been shown by now pretty convincingly that the Murray thesis is incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of sources on this, but the main one I can think of would be Ronald Hutton's book, Triumph of the Moon. But Federici in this part isn't actually debunking the Murray thesis exactly, but she is seeing it as incomplete. Yeah, she doesn't. She just kind of throws out the Murray thesis as one of the explanations that has been proposed. Mm-hmm. But she kind of has her own reasons for thinking that the Murray thesis is at least incomplete. And she says, um, the Murray thesis can't explain the timing of the witch hunt. Like, why would the authorities decide that now of all times Mm -hmm. would be the time to crack down on the pagan cults? And a lot of the people who were persecuted were Christians. Maybe all of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a pretty big hole right. in the theory right. as well. <laughs> There's lots of holes in the Murray thesis, and Federici's not endorsing it. I do want to add, though, uh, just for context, that, that the Murray thesis was really taken up big time by second wave feminists in the 1970s who were uh, reviving, in their opinion, the goddess religions. And they saw themselves at, themselves as an intact lineage with this witch cult in Europe. Yeah. That went all the way back to like, classical greek and roman times possibly Mm -hmm. um and so there was a big resurgence of interest in that and they they really liked this book telling them that they were part of an authentic lineage right and then i want to highlight that partially because i see this happening a lot again now there is what i will call a resurgence now because it's going back to the 70s (laughs) um yeah of interest in witchcraft and in goddess religion and I think that I've seen more than one influential young pagan writer discuss this lineage as intact and refer to the Murray thesis as if it had not been discredited. So I just want to highlight that okay. this concept of a European witch cult being the actual victims of the witch hunt is still very alive and mm-hmm. being promoted often by trans-exclusive radical feminists. Yeah, actually. Right. Um, so just to say that, like that idea is not did not just go away once it was discredited. Sure. It's still alive and still being promoted by a sure. um, young witches in their 20s, you know. So just to point that out. So given that she sees the Murray thesis and other kind of single issue analysis of this time period as incomplete, then what is Federici contributing to this conversation? Part of what she points to is the fact that not only were women targeted, but especially older women. And we've talked about that already in this episode. But uh, women over 40, especially if they were widowed, or unmarried, were more likely to be accused of being witches. 
part of this had to do with a growing emphasis on the desire to have control over the population and over reproduction within the culture. And this is connected to some of what we've already talked about, which is that because of the enclosures and the new laws, there was increased scarcity and starvation and malnutrition. And so population levels were declining at a time when the ruling class really wanted numbers Yeah, in the peasant class. And so there became an obsession with the reproduction of humans amongst the peasant class at a time when people were having trouble carrying children to term. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Federici, she's, she's correlating a few different facts on the ground that she is noticing. And one of them is the preponderance of what she calls reproductive crimes mm-hmm. that were present in the accusations thrown at women. And... That this actually goes all the way back to the papal bull from 1484 that was roughly contemporaneous with the Malleus Maleficarum and was like one of the earliest documents establishing the groundwork for the witch hunt. Mm -hmm. And uh, she quotes from it and is talking about, what is it saying here? Um, By their incantations, spells, conjurations, and other accursed superstitions and horrid charms, blah, blah, blah. Um, which is destroy the offspring of women. They hinder men from generating and women from conceiving, blah, blah, blah. You know, so laying the groundwork for this idea that witches um, would cause abortions, render people sterile, infanticide was even among the accusations. And so, and so it begs the question, like what, why all of these reproductive crimes, Mm -hmm. you know, and then Federici is, you know, sh- she's drawing this together. Well, if you actually look at the context in history, mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying, Janet, uh, this is the time period in which the elites were very concerned with population size. Mm-hmm. You know, very, very concerned with population size. And there was, for the first time really ever, at least in the Western world, there was rhetoric about how large population makes a nation wealthy. And by that, it makes the elites wealthy. Right. Or the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, the women over 40 would have been seen as no longer capable of producing more labor power, even though women have children after 40 all the time now. Right. That was considered um, <clears throat> post-reproductive time. Right. That would be like the crone era already, which is wild to imagine for some of us, probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know... Some of what uh, the point, because this was a terror campaign that was meant to control the entire peasant population, as Jean Baudin, who is a particularly terrible person in the witch hunts, uh, a French persecutor, he said, we have to, quote, spread terror in some by punishing the many. And so what he was saying was, there may only be a few witches, but just to make sure we get to them, we have to punish a lot of people. And these women over 40 were considered dispensable because they were not productive units. They were not wombs that could keep creating. Right. So they were not only suspect as possibly being people who were controlling or helping women control their reproduction, they were also the most disposable population at that time Mm -hmm. to be used as examples for punishment. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this reminds me, I mean, as I'm sure it reminds and has reminded a lot of people about the current, some of the current anti-abortion rhetoric 
and the concern with what's called white genocide. Oh, yeah. And just that, like, the particulars are different, but what's in common is the desire to control women and the reproductive freedom of women due to demographic concerns. If you look into the ideologies of a lot of anti-abortion activists, it has to do with not wanting anything to diminish the reproduction of white women. Absolutely. Because of, you know, because of race fears. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if any of you guys have ever actually compared the experiences of young white women to women of color, but the fact is, is if a young white woman goes in, even if she has a couple kids and tries to get her tubes tied, she has a really hard time being sterilized (laughs) Um, while women of color in the history of the U.S. have been sterilized without consent. Yeah. For a long time, you know, so like that is actually like government evidence <laughs> yeah. of the enforcement of the, that white supremacist view of reproduction. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, this was a time period and what I'm about to say is not unique to this time period that women, just to speak in broad strokes, but women as a generality are specialists in reproductive work. And that includes midwifery and herbal and other practices that would influence fertility, Mm -hmm. right? So either encouraging conception Mm -hmm. or hindering conception. This was part of women's work, not just helping birth babies, but all of the aspects, like the full spectrum of reproductive work. And there is some evidence that accused witches in this time period included women who participated in this. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of women did. And in fact, there was there was a pamphlet that was published in the 70s that specifically focused on this aspect of the witch hunt. Mm-hmm. You may know of this one already. It's by Barbara Ehrenreich and Deidre English, 1973. And it was called Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, A History of Women Healers. And uh, it's been reprinted a lot, quite a bit. And it's been criticized as well. Um, and so like, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but the thesis of that pamphlet is basically saying that, and Janet chime in on this, cause you might have read it more recently than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's basically making the argument that it was women's role as healers and midwives and herbalists, not just in reproductive work, right. But in all kinds of healing work. That was a specific target of the witch hunt. Mm-hmm. And this was in a time period where, as we've kind of referred to already, the practice of medicine was undergoing a bourgeois professionalization where men were trying to take more and more control and power mm-hmm. in the world of healing mm-hmm. to the exclusion of folk healers and women and midwives. Uh, and that men were moving in and, and taking more power in the realms of obstetrics and birthing, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to set up a system where kind of like we have now where there's a higher tier of doctors. Most of them are men. Mm-hmm. And then they're they're served by nurses, most of which are women, mm-hmm. you know. And so the Barbara Ehrenreich Deidre English pamphlet was talking about the witch hunts as part of what violently suppressed mm-hmm. This world of women healers. Right. Right. And yeah, I mean, it is true that there was a suppression of reproductive control in the women's sphere and a targeting 
of women who were midwives or who were known to work with herbs. Mm -hmm. But some of the criticism that this pamphlet has received in the past couple decades has been that that was overemphasized and yeah. who was actually a victim of the witch hunts. Mm -hmm. And there is ample evidence that midwives were persecuted, but midwives also testified against other midwives, that there were women on both sides of the tribunals, mm -hmm. that they played out against each other. And I know that that has to do with um, probably midwives of higher status were able to maintain that class status by turning against other midwives, and there probably became a sort of vicious power play happening here. Yeah. Also, I've seen folks point out that herbalism didn't actually go away, especially in the upper classes. And if you read that pamphlet, it definitely makes you think that maybe herbal knowledge was just eradicated. And yeah. that's not what happened. Um, Stephanie Hofelt, who's an herbalist in Iowa, who I really respect, she talks about how there was this whole branch of herbal medicine called domestic medicine and that women in the upper class families were still required to understand herbs, keep certain herbs around, and they were... Even if they were just appointing people and their staff to do so, they were required to keep herbal remedies in the house. And even most families had small stills. Yeah, they kept an apothecary for yeah. the household. So right. it's just not true that er that herbal knowledge was eradicated during this time period. Yeah. So it's kind of one of these things, again, where yes and no. Uh -huh. No, the witch hunt was not a laser-targeted... Right attempt to eradicate women healers. Right. There's just too much else going on right. than that. And so the oversimplification, again, of what was going on with the witch hunt and the function of the witch hunt is at play in mm -hmm. that thesis. But also, you know, the, the criticism of the Ehrenreich pamphlet, we shouldn't like throw the baby out with the bathwater there because it's true that the professionalization of medicine benefited from the terrorism that was the witch hunt, mm -hmm. for sure. And so in a functionalist analysis of history, we can see how it functioned mm -hmm. exactly in that capacity, yeah. And also, the larger point is that it was an attack on the world of women, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. The, like, of which... This reproductive work, midwives, contraception, herbalists and healers was a part. Mm -hmm. And so the autonomous world of women, healers and midwives, that was definitely a target of the witch hunts. Right. You know, to end that kind of autonomy. Mm -hmm. You know, and so this is why, like what you're saying, when you see the midwives accusing other women... It was the midwives who were who were trying to attain or preserve a privileged position right. within the emerging mm -hmm. male dominated hierarchy. Right. You know, who were selling out other women mm -hmm. in order to cozy up to the emerging hierarchy. Right. Like right. And so the fact that midwives were sometimes accusers is not like it doesn't just sink this whole idea mm -hmm. that the professionalization was part of what was going on. It right. actually is evidence for mm -hmm. it when viewed in the way that I just described. All right. You know, so some writers like uh, there's a feminist historian named Diane Perkis who has written a lot about the witch hunts and debunked, you know, she's like another myth buster about the burning times and the witch hunts. And she has 
what she has to say is really valuable to read and instructive, but also I think she kind of takes it too far sometimes mm-hmm. um, in the arguments that she makes. Right. Yeah. But Federici here, I, I think she has a nice take mm-hmm. because she brings the professionalization of medicine and the attack on the autonomous world of women healers and reproductive workers as an aspect mm-hmm. of the witch hunts. Right. Without trying to say that it was the main thing mm-hmm. or that it was, you know, not a factor or that it was not right. a factor. Right. Uh, so that's kind of long because we felt like we had to address right. know, some of the debate around these. Because I definitely just as I was talking about the witch cult lineage, <laughs> the intact lineage being a myth that won't die. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the idea of the primacy the privacy of women healers as the large proportion of women who are who are killed is also a myth that doesn't die. I see that pamphlet continually distributed without the update. And just so everyone knows, Aaron Reich and English republished that book, a book version of it, in the past decade, and they have an introduction that acknowledges how faulty some of the scholarship is in it and what the myths are, but I very rarely see that included in the reprints when I see people putting out zine versions. Oh, really? So I just want to say that the story hasn't died either. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. even though the authors have corrected it and added to that story, that is being left out of a lot of reproductions of it. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. One of the more interesting parts to me of the multifaceted approach Federici has here is that she acknowledges how one of the effects of the witch hunts and that campaign of terror on those communities was the actual creation of a new idea of women. And we touched on this a little bit in an earlier episode I'm going to read this, actually, because it's a good quote. But she says, The witch hunt, then, was a war against women. It was a concerted attempt to degrade them, demonize them, and destroy their social power. At the same time, it was in the torture chambers and on the stakes on which the witches perished that the bourgeois ideals of womanhood and domesticity were forged. So while we have a destruction of of women's power and women as... uh, pillars in their community of resistance as leading the fight and insurrection against the transition to capitalism um, as helpers and supporters of whole communities. We have women identified as weak and dangerous and needing of control. Mm -hmm. And the product of this forging of the new identity was to create women who were quiet, didn't talk back, meek and knew their place because it was dangerous to stand out too much yeah 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 federici really encourages us uh to see here how part of what was being attacked with the witch hunt was this specific emergence of an empowered womanhood Mm -hmm. that came out of that came out of the end of feudalism Mm -hmm. that came out of the developments that we were talking about you know in some of the early chapters of the book when things were looking better for people (laughs) yeah 
Uh, <laughs> it's funny that I'm laughing. Yeah. Uh, you know, back when things looked better. <laughs> remember how after the plague, when the, you know, the population went down, people like the peasantry gained a lot of power and women and the heretic movements gained a lot of strength and women were leaders in the heretic movements. And even when they weren't leaders, had a much more empowered position in these movements. And then in the resistance against the enclosures, women were leaders in the resistance against the enclosures. And even though the enclosures itself was a, a devastating development for the proletariat, for the peasantry, the role of women in society as like the glue that held communities together, as you know, the leaders in so many aspects of revolt, and just the general badassery of women in the late Middle Ages was intolerable to the ruling classes and had to be suppressed. You know, so this is just another aspect. It's not just it wasn't just oh the reproductive um powers or anti-reproductive powers that women held or uh the other things that we've been talking about, but also just a very she calls it um a specific kind of female personality that was seen as defiant and rebellious. Mm -hmm. The woman who swore the woman who was not afraid of men, mm -hmm. the woman who was seen as like loose or promiscuous, who was sexually empowered, mm -hmm. and the woman who was autonomous, and maybe, and the woman who was magical, mm -hmm. you know, and could curse you. Mm -hmm. That image of womanhood had to be put on trial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things I see as most disturbing in this um, chapter is the destruction of female community and just like women supporting each other, which we talked about a little bit with the midwives, but also just the, um, the idea that women congregating was dangerous and that they and not trustworthy. Right. Um, she talks about how like the word gossip used to mean friend and then gossip became a word that meant more like idle chatter between women that was dangerous mm -hmm. and destructive and subversive yeah right yeah so i mean not just gatherings of women but friendship between women was suspect in general became yeah. suspect right yeah yeah and i just want to point out that that like if we you know if there was like a, a playbook for how an abuser in a domestic violence situation would act it often would include cutting someone off from their support systems, restricting their movement, and making them financially dependent on others. Yeah. On the partner that's abusive. Yeah. It's almost like an institutional top-down version of that right. abuse scenario. Right. Where women as a whole and as individuals were not allowed freedom of movement, were economically dependent and were cut off from all of their support networks. It's such a terrible story. It's a terrible story. And there's a part that I felt was really effective in here where it's in just one paragraph where Federici talks about, encourages us to think about what it would be like to be a woman watching an execution mm -hmm. of another woman in your community and not just one but probably several mm -hmm. right because people were in some places forced to come out and watch these right. executions whether they were burned or hanged or whatever 
And whatever we want to say about the motives, like the conscious motives of the people who are conducting these witch trials and these executions, to imagine the effect on you as a woman seeing your neighbors or family members, often these really tough, independent women. And maybe it was the woman who had given you some herbs or gave you a charm but maybe just somebody who you've known your whole life and and to see these women being tortured and perish and then to think about what effect that had on you and what you felt was too risky to do mm-hmm. or or to be mm-hmm. even. And I think that recognition of what it was like for individual women is part of what feminist writers who really focus in on the gender trauma are are speaking to like and when they say the trauma that we're passing down from woman to woman through generations of from people of lands where this has happened i think that's what they want to acknowledge we just need to be able to acknowledge that while we talk about the larger impact on the community and the point Mm -hmm. of it because the point of this terror campaign was partially to control women but it was also to control everybody else yeah. You know. Yeah. And women definitely carried this in their bodies and passed that down to their children. But the impact at was bigger than that. That doesn't lessen that trauma, but it's important that we acknowledge that the ripple out effect was was impacted more than just the women in the community. Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
Another major theme is the deepening of the division between between the sexes. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of ways that this manifested itself. But the major one is that many of the supposed crimes of witches had men as their direct victims. Mm-hmm. And so uh, like, right. yeah. like there was this idea that witches had all kinds of magical ways of affecting male sexuality Mm -hmm. like they could just make men go impotent with a spell or make them sterile or in some stories even disappear their penises and there's like these stories of witches that magically removed the penises of 80 men in the village and had them stored in a magical tree (laughs) right (laughs) you want to talk about mass hysteria Yeah, yeah you know And then there's the idea that maybe women were, while you were sleeping, were like going off to the mountaintop to have sex with other women and the devil, Mm -hmm. you know? But but all of this fabulation about what witches were up to was something that was specifically designed to feel threatening to men. And so, as you can imagine, it created a climate of fear and distrust. So by all of this, men were taught to fear women and to accuse them, accuse them of witch crimes, to accuse them of being witches. And, you know, besides just a climate of fear, it also became a tool for opportunistic men to cast aspersions on a woman in the community that they needed to silence for some reason. You know, like maybe uh, a woman in the community that they'd uh, had an affair with and they were afraid of her talking or something and and this could be a threat um and not even just a threat but if you were a man you could ruin a woman this way or to cover up sexual assault or to cover up sexual assault or to get rid of a wife that you were tired of exactly exactly yeah it's terrible and so yeah i mean aside from just creating like a general climate of fear and distrust it what it could also provide cover. It's kind of like the original capitalist bait and switch situation because there are you're giving power with to one group of people over another group of people, and you'll see this play out in, in the way that white supremacy spread around the globe, yeah, as well. You know where even poor white folks in this country can commit violence against folks of color and get away with it, yeah, under a lot of conditions because of the same kind of legal framework, you know, that's based on a hierarchical caste system between groups of people. Yep. Yeah. So you can imagine, just to restate one of Sylvia Federici's main points with this whole book, is that one of the things that is necessary for capitalism to survive is to create and maintain divisions between the people that it rules. Mm Mm-hmm. That the witch hunt was a very effective tool at deepening and enforcing the division between men and women. Mm-hmm. Right. And the effect of this was a wholesale undermining of class solidarity. So right. having the peasant class fighting each other rather than actually working together against the imposition of this horrifying system of violence, you know, and you see this between the sexes. But also, interestingly, as the witch hunts went on, uh, there started to be, you know, we, we've been talked at the beginning about how when the witch hunts started, there was a sort of top-down accusation where the ruling class accused poor people or the peasants of witchcraft and had them tried. Over time, by the end of the witch hunts, 
you saw more neighbors accusing neighbors and peasants or proletariats accusing other peasants of witchcraft. And there became sort of a like populist explosion of accusations. And instead of it coming from the upper class to the lower class, it was happening horizontally over time. So you see this the very direct like splitting up of people and division and community as well. Right. Totally. Yeah. And eventually this whole process got really out of control mm-hmm. um, towards the end of the chapter of Hedorishi talks about the end of the witch hunt, the question of like what made it end. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we talked in the beginning about how the state carried out the witch hunts and then the state kind of suppressed it at the end or clamped down on it. And Federici basically if I remember right, she she gives like two main reasons for the end of the witch hunt. And one of them, kind of the biggest one is the work had been done. Yeah, It was they, successful at they that won. point. Yeah. They won. Capitalism had established a very secure foothold at this time period. A lot of the feudal and medieval institutions had been basically eradicated and the work was done. But also kind of going along with it is that they had started this process that they eventually kind of lost control over. And not only were neighbors accusing neighbors and all of this, but also people were accusing upper class folks mm-hmm. like this guy who we've talked about, Jean Baudin, who 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 was a mercantilist kind of public intellectual who cheered on the witch hunts and uh, did a bunch of other fucked up shit. But he was accused of being a witch. So at this point, you know, the state was like, OK, we're done and took various steps to end the witch hunt at this point. And I think that that uh, shift into it being more horizontal and actually moving from bottom up some of the time also allowed them to reframe the whole episode in history as being always a populist phenomenon, which turned it into sort of the mania or craze idea that we talked about earlier. Yeah, right. right. Because there was a period in the witch hunt where... It looked a little more like that. Right. Yeah. And it was towards the end. And so it was, it was the, the last thing people remembered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. So I think it has to do with that. Yeah. I mean, one of the other, um, when you're talking about capitalism being successful and that being a large reason it ended, there was also the consolidation of the idea of the nuclear family as an economic unit and as a piece of the production machine. Mm-hmm. For the capitalist production machine. Yeah. Um, and that had been pretty thoroughly enforced by this point, too, because they had been cracking down so much on any kind of sexual activity that was outside of productive, procreative, heterosexual activity. Yeah. And some of the things she lists are really interesting to me because I knew some of them, but not all of them. But um, definitely homosexual practices, sexual practices were criminalized. Um but also sex between young people and old people. Right. So that's just like policing like the age range because you want to make sure children are, are produced. Um, yeah. If there's even a functional yeah. argument at this point, you know, some of it just seems right. gratuitous in the sense where like it's hard to even see a functional right. aspect. Mm-hmm. It's just about conformity to a very narrow standard. Right. Yeah, because sex between the classes was also criminalized. Yeah. Which obviously is about something entirely different than procreation. <laughs> right. That's just about property value of the children that are produced. Yeah. And then, you know, like... Ena- stratification. Oh, stratification, yeah. right. Totally. 
anal sex, coitus from behind was criminalized because they thought that it was less likely to produce children. <laughs> um, so there were some, yeah. you know, specious ideas going on that were informing these. But yeah. also just like nudity was banned and dances. <laughs> so dances were also seen as um, mm-hmm. as subversive, you know. Right. Um, she also... Well, we think of... Right. I mean, I'm sorry to butt in, but like I'm kind of imagining what we think of these days as kind of repressive Christian right. ideas about oh, sex. Oh, right. Uh-huh. Right? Like, sex is only for procreation. Right. It's never for fun or for anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, you only get to have sex in the missionary position, mm-hmm. no other positions, whether it's because of procreation or not. Or, you know, yeah, you don't get nude at the swimming hole. Mm-hmm. or whatever you have to like always be chased and like all this stuff and we think of this as it's christians who act like this or, or something right but in this historical lens it's like well right. there were plenty of christians who didn't act like that these became features of christianity at a certain historical moment right in support of the capitalist's work machine yeah huh, interesting yeah right yeah yeah, and she also talks about, I just want to add this because we're trying to queer up the Federici analysis. Uh, she talks about how the kind of like rebel woman that Dave was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. um, one of the practices you could have that would make you suspect as a woman was to dress in men's clothes. So any kind of like masculine dress or presentation or way of moving through the world was seen as suspect and possibly yeah. witchy. And so you'll see if you look at the documents of the time of who was being tried, um, there were a lot of people who were seen to wear like too many men's clothes. And Joan of Arc is one of the people who was tried on that. Actually. Oh, surely. Um, sure. So so there was definitely like a little bit like if you were like gender fluid or gender fucking, you would definitely be more likely to be persecuted during this time period as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which also, I want to say, kind of like pokes some holes in some of the radical feminist versions of this that see see it as just an attack on women as women. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's important to point that out. Yeah. And actually, when we're talking about the next section in the book, which is about witches in the New World, and by the New World we mean the colonies, mm-hmm. then we see this sort of like compulsory heterosexual presentation also show up. Which is interesting. Right. Because, so the bigger picture is, as the witch craze was going on back in Europe, at the same time, the European colonists were seeing the devil everywhere in the New World. They saw pagan religion as practiced by indigenous people as just being devil worship in general. Yeah. And they used some of the same techniques being used on accused witches at home on indigenous people Mm -hmm. in the colonies. Also, once Africans were kidnapped and enslaved and brought over, they were also identified as devil-worshipping or seen as worshipping the devil because of their indigenous religious practices as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So uh, the idea that there were like a lot of spirits and that you would venerate your ancestors or work with your ancestors was seen as evidence of devil worship as well. Uh, So basically, as settler colonial capitalism was spreading it saw the devil everywhere and it used that idea as a means of control by torturing and executing the indigenous population yeah um it's an interesting parallel that yeah she's drawing here where she's she's kind of because these are contemporaneous mm-hmm. 
right? right. Like that's a lot of the reason, you know, to draw this parallel is that while the while the witch hunts were going on in Europe, mm-hmm. also the European ruling class was portraying all of these uncivilized, quote unquote, indigenous people and Africans as demonic and in league with or controlled by the devil in some mm-hmm. way. And like, yeah, like you're saying, like a lot of the same rhetoric, it's mm-hmm. like they had these big communal feasts. They were right. libidinous. They they were more connected with wild things and wild nature than civilization and, mm-hmm. you know, like rows of crops and like all of this type of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then simultaneously, as I was saying when I started this part, they saw any kind of gender nonconformity, and by that I mean nonconformity to European standards as they were arising at this time, uh-huh. as also devilish and to be suppressed. Mm-hmm. And so when they came to Turtle Island and came across all of these different tribes who had many genders and many kinds of gender presentation and many kinds of relationships... Uh, romantic relationships that were like right, uh, right polyamorous or just whatever the words we have right now don't actually do justice to the life ways at the time but yeah, yeah. um but anything that was outside of the nuclear family norm heteronormative heteronormative mm-hmm. presentation of gender then was seen as evidence of diabolical behavior or diabolical spirits and so those people were also suppressed and were violently eradicated in some cases there's definitely examples of whole tribes being wiped out by spanish conquistadors partially because of what they saw as gender aberrant behavior Mm -hmm. and so another way that we can apply a queer analysis to this is that the gender binary was part of what was being enforced and exported Mm-hmm. to the colonies and that any kind of deviation from that binary was violently suppressed. Yeah. Yeah. So we've basically gotten to the end of the chapter mm-hmm. by now, but there's something, there's an addendum to all of this that I want to have a conversation about. And it has to do with this kind of slippery sense throughout this chapter and ambiguity that Federici exhibits as to the question of whether witches were really doing witchy stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Basically the question of were witches real? You mean the accused witches? The accused witches. And that's part of the slipperiness. Right. Is because Federici will talk about witches being like this and like this. Mm -hmm. And you assume from context that she means accused witches. Mm -hmm. But her language is kind of slippery. Like there's this part on page 200 where there's a sentence that says, historically, the witch was the village midwife, medic, soothsayer or sorceress mm-hmm. right and does she mean the accused witch mm-hmm. right i mean not that it ultimately matters but she seems to be talking about that there were right women historically not just in the imagination of these mm-hmm. inquisitors but there were women whose role in the community was not just midwife or medic but sorceress or soothsayer mm-hmm. right 
And I mean, this is not a controversial <laughs> idea, really, right? Because we're talking about folk magic and we're talking about role in society of, you know, people who would do divination mm-hmm. or would perform charms for you or mm-hmm. give you magical charms to perform to accomplish certain ends. I guess just part of what I wanted to talk about is that, yeah, you know, on one page, Federici talks about that the accused witch might be like this old woman who's broke and who's caught gathering firewood on someone else's property and then gets blamed mm-hmm. because so went wrong. their horse dies or something, yeah. you know. But then on another page, the witch is someone who is doing folk magic. Mm-hmm. And there is a difference for sure between mm-hmm. what the witches were accused of. Right. Like actually causing harm to people or property, which is one aspect of the accusation. And then another aspect of accusation is like consorting with the devil Mm -hmm. and, you know, going off to the witch's Sabbath. But then there's the reality Mm -hmm. of seers and magical practitioners Mm -hmm. who are just part of the community. Right. And Federici never exactly says that this is what the women were tried for, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, you're a tarot card reader. You have to burn at the stake. But she is kind of saying that it's this, that this is part of what was in the larger sense being targeted Mm -hmm. by the witch trials because the world had to be disenchanted, Mm -hmm. right? And we talked about the destruction of magic and the disenchantment of the world. And so this world of folk magic and the creation of spells and love charms, you know, was part of what was frowned upon, to -hmm. say the least, Mm -hmm. right, by the emerging order and was then targeted by the witch hunts. And so Federici's implying, you know, and I haven't done the actual scholarship to actually look at the primary sources or even the secondary sources all that much besides this one Mm -hmm. to see, but she's implying that these women who worked in this way, were among the accused. Right. Did you get that sense from reading yeah, the chapter? Yeah, I got chapter? that sense too. I think if I was going to answer that for her, I don't know. I think it's like, yes, all of them were witches. And that mm-hmm. it was the woman who borrowed yeast or begged. Right. And the women who made love spells. Right. Know? Right. And there's something, I guess there's something that I want to say here, which that I want to draw out from this chapter, which is that, there's some folks who are historians of the witch hunts who just want to say, like Barbara Ehrenreich is kind of in this mm-hmm. realm or something, who want to say, this was a fantasy. They were not witches. These were herbalists and midwives. Mm-hmm. You know, and the herbalist and the midwife is something that makes perfect sense to a rational brain. Right. You know, yeah. to to like a 20th century, right. 21st century enlightenment rational brain, mm-hmm. right? The, I mean, herbalism is definitely not held in favor by the medical professions now, but it's still like you can have a disenchanted, non-magical view of the world and understand mm-hmm. herbalism and definitely midwifery. But... Part of what I'm drawing out of this chapter, too, is just the reminder that the Inquisitors weren't making up that there was spellcraft and magic going on in this right. world. Right, right. They had a distorted view of what it was about. Mm-hmm. 
but there is actually a continuity of magical tradition that leads up to this moment and past it. It didn't totally die with this moment either. Right. And I think that there's a lesson for us there for those of us who participate now right. in a re-enchantment of the world mm-hmm. and are looking back at history. Yeah, I think it's interesting what all you're saying is true. I think she's allowing space for all of it. Yeah. You know, and I've definitely heard people criticize Federici for being too materialist and acting like she doesn't allow for their May actually witches. And mm-hmm. to me, now I'm starting to think they didn't read the book. Right. And that criticism is coming from an uninformed place, and maybe they should do some research. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. Thank you for saying that because I, I, I mean, yeah, I kind of feel like that's that's part of what I'm trying to address right. is this idea that maybe for Federici, like the concept of which is just a repository for all of this ideological stuff that had to be demonized by capitalism mm-hmm. in order for it to move forward, and it's that. But it's also, there were real practitioners. Absolutely. Of actual, we could call it witchcraft, but magic, mm-hmm. you know, that were swept up in this. Right. And were being specifically targeted by this. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, and some of them were just Catholic, you yeah. know? I mean, so what I think Federici's adding to the whole conversation is, like, the complexity that, like, yeah, there were witches. Mm-hmm. There were right. practitioners. And then there were people who weren't. And... We can have both. Yeah. Like what she's providing us with is a nuanced and fleshed out version of this that has the complexity of the actual moment. Right. Instead of just one single issue pushing through to define it all. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. And part of what she talks about, too, related to this that we haven't talked about yet is the misogynist aspect of this, Mm -hmm. where men of certain status were still safe practicing magic. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm Because there's a paragraph on that, like about how it was still fine for for Isaac Newton, you know, to practice alchemy. While he talked about science. Yeah. In his laboratory. Meanwhile, the witches were getting burned. Totally. You know. And I mean, I got to say, there is a part of me that even though the double standard there is obvious and glaring, and I take that point, there is still a part of me that rebels somewhat at drawing an equivalence between alchemy and these other kinds of magic, mm-hmm. you know, just because they both partake of like a magical worldview. Right. right. You know, because if you accept that there are quote unquote magical sympathetic lines of connection between things in the world and that there are ways of working with those, then I guess what I'm trying to say is that that is such a fundamental observation to make Mm -hmm. that the different manifestations that build off of that are so different from each other Mm -hmm. that it doesn't make a lot of sense to lump them together. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it's kind of like saying that um, downhill skiing is basically akin to plumbing because they both rely on gravity. Right. (laughs) And so like alchemy is akin to a love spell because they both rely on a magical world Mm -hmm. where things are connected by magical lines of influence. Well, to me, it just seems like she's pointing out like almost like a professionalization within magic. Yeah. You know, that's like just as all of these other occupations, including, you know, gynecology are being professionalized so was magic kind of you know and that the elite 
occultists mm-hmm. slash scientists who are all men, the Renaissance magi or right. um, scientists. Right. Their sympathetic magic was tolerated and encouraged and even endorsed with money. Yeah. Um, while at the same time, the like, yeah. feminine version, the divination, the, the like spellcraft on a yeah. smaller scale that was personal and communal. And often happened with groups rather than just by oneself in the lab. Yeah. Right. Was being not only looked down upon, but criminalized. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I kind of see what she's talking about. No, I I totally see what she, It's kind of a both and thing okay. for, for me where I totally see what she's talking about. And also, and this is not just about the Federici thing. It's just, I think that it takes a mind that grew up in mm. a disenchanted world right indoctrinated by rationality right to look at anything that seems magical or supernatural and kind of put all those under one tent okay right you yeah. know what i mean i hear that. just because it's like would be on the x-files or something <laughs> Or like <laughs> I didn't see the alchemy version episode of that, but I would like to. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And sure. that's I mean and that's why I'm saying and that's what I mean like when I say alchemy is as different from a love spell mm-hmm. as plumbing is from downhill skiing. Right, right, right. Like, yeah, they both make use of gravity mm-hmm. plumbing and downhill skiing. But otherwise they're such different worlds right. of working with gravity. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. alchemy and a love spell are such different worlds of working with these other unseen forces that it's like hard to put them under the same tent, mm-hmm. you know? And I guess that's just, maybe this is a digressive point. Mm-hmm. It just reminded me of a little pet peeve that I have sometimes. Right. Well, I just want to not, I think that it's at least worth acknowledging that the gendered stratification that she's talking about within magic uh-huh. What if, even if it's the big tent of magic is still very prevalent today. Oh, yeah. And we still have the more prominent occultists who are using the more complicated uh, ways of interacting with the spirit realm held up as the experts mm-hmm. while women performing folk magic are seen as dilettants. A lower strat. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's a big digression. Yeah. All of Dave and Janet's various thoughts about everything bring out <laughs> in some way, one way or another, from Chapter Four of Caliban and the Witch. Isn't it so uh, much more fun to talk about the categorization of magic than it is to talk about the actual nuts and bolts of the witch hunts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. I think we should wrap this up, maybe. And uh, the sun has come out, and the getting is good. There's stuff to do. So, so here we are. One more chapter. This is, um, we've gotten to the end of chapter four, which really, I mean, I I really want to emphasize that I hope you've gotten a lot out of our conversation about this. There's a lot in the chapter that we didn't talk about. Right. And there's a lot in the chapter that even if we talked about it a little bit, there's a lot more either in the book or, you know, just there's a lot more to reflect on from what's in the book. And if you're only going to read one chapter of Caliban and the Witch, I would read this one. This is my personal recommendation. I don't know about you, Janet, but but we've both talked about how in a book that's pretty dense, dense with like theory and references and history and stuff, this chapter, it's a good read. It's a pretty easy read. I mean, not emotionally because it's hard, but as far as it's a very like readable chapter. Mm-hmm. And what Federici is putting forth in this chapter is a lot of what this book is known for. 
And so, yeah, I really do. If you're not reading along every chapter, if you haven't read the book already, I do encourage you to read this one. It'll keep you thinking probably for the rest of your life. So we've got one more. We got one more, one more chapter. And guess what? It's chapter five. Uh, It's called Colonization and Christianization, Caliban and Witches in the New World. Which I'm glad we're going to go back to that because she only touches on it briefly in this past chapter. And I think it's good that we're going to spend more time with that idea. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then after that, we will wrap up the book and we'll be done for this season. All right. Bye-bye. We'll see you next time.